Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the malevolent men of the wild new movie men, as well as the new Florence and the Machine Song King. This is not your father's patriarchy. I'm Josh Larson, editor over at thinkchristian.net and host of the TC Podcast, where we like to say there's no such thing as secular. Well, we should probably set our terms right from the top with this one. What do we mean by patriarchy? Christians, after all, talk of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, men who, yes, were part of a patriarchal social structure and certainly had their personal failings, but were also faithful followers of God and key figures in his redemptive plan. So it's not necessarily Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob we're specifically thinking of when we discuss patriarchy on this episode. Rather, it's something like this a male-dominated social structure that warps God's plan for humanity. So practices and assumptions that especially cause harm to women by devaluing their imago Dei. Basically, anytime manhood gets in the way of recognizing women as created beings made in the image of God, worthy of equal dignity. Now, all that being said, the original biblical patriarch, Adam, will certainly come up in our discussion of men, a contemporary set horror film that also takes place, allegorically at least, in the Garden of Eden. Abiel Chessie is going to join me for that. Also on this episode, I'll talk to Sarah Welch-Larson about King, a new Florence, and the machine song that has patriarchy on its mind. First, though, we are nine reviews away from reaching 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. That is important because these reviews encourage Apple to put our show on the radar of new listeners. So if you would like to help us get to 100, it's easy to leave a review right now as you're listening. In the Apple Podcasts app, scroll down to click on the show link. It'll read Think Christian. Then you can scroll down again until you get to ratings and reviews. You can leave one right there. We appreciate it. All right, time to confront the patriarchy with Sarah Welch Larson and Florence and the Machine. Sarah Welch Larson is back on the Florence and the Machine beat for us. She wrote about 2018's High as Hope and is now back to consider Florence Welch's new album, Dance Fever. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. And just to be clear, no relation to Florence Welch. I know. That's right. Yeah. I thought about that as I was uh, putting some notes together. Where So where would you say your Florence of the Machine fandom level is at these days? I mean, high enough uh, that I would like to see her in concert, but haven't had the chance to at this point. But I've been listening to her for a good amount of time. Um, probably not like from the moment that she burst onto the scene, but pretty shortly thereafter. So Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think she's coming our way, right? Chicago way um, for a concert. Actually. Beginning of July. So, I'm really bummed to be missing that one, mm, unfortunately. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's getting out there in support of this album. Now, I, you know, I think of Florence Welch as this powerhouse vocalist with bombastic instrumentation to match. Mm-hmm. So Dance Fever, that stood out to me right away as an interesting title. You know, I can. I can imagine thrashing to some of her choruses, maybe, but <laughs> dancing might be might be something else. I don't know. Give me an idea what you think is going on with this album, uh, Sarah. And then maybe you can talk a little bit about the song we want to focus on, King. How mm-hmm. does that fit into it? Is it part of a larger thematic concern, or is it a bit of an outlier in the context of the other songs? Dance Fever definitely feels like it's kind of a return to some of her more Baroque tendencies. I feel like her previous album, High as Hope, was a little bit on the 
thinner isn't the right word for it, but definitely on the more delicate, dreamy, like kind of mm. kind of um, spider webby kind of level. And this like is that. definitely laying like a lot of heavier details and a lot of. I don't know, weight and heft back into it. She's like you said, she's got this incredibly lovely voice that's just this this incredible, like deep belting, like the kind of music that I like to sing along to, but only when nobody else is around because I can't possibly <laughs> match hers. Sure, sure. And I think what she's doing with Dance Fever is she's returning to those kind of Baroque, mythical, I'm going to layer a lot of details on tendencies that she's had in previous albums. And in King in particular, it kind of feels like it's laying out the thesis statement for the entire album where she's okay. talking about her relationship to the audience and to her artwork and how far does she really want to go when it comes to creating art, really? And what does she have to give up in order to be able to make that art? Um, mm -hmm. She kind of talks about needing to have like a rotten heart and a lot of pain in order to be able to sing the, the way she, that she does. And... Um, I don't know that I fully agree with that, but I do think that she is mining some of those depths in particular for this song and for the album as a whole as well. Let's hear a little bit of King and then we'll discuss it in more detail. So in the chorus of King, Welch rejects these traditionally female roles in favor of a more patriarchal title. She says, I'm no mother, I am no bride, I am king. Mm -hmm. And then if we look at the video for King, she seems to physically take the crown in a sense. It opens with this distressed man in a concrete loft space, and then Welch appears at the window in a purple hooded cloak. Things do not go well for the man from there, <laughs> so... Give me your reading on this, Sarah. What do you think is going on here? It's interesting. There's a lot of tarot imagery, I think, actually, that she mm -hmm. uses for this album. And okay. so King is one of the suits, and it tends to um, symbolize maturity and stability, which I think is kind of interesting given the content of, of the music video, where it feels like she's almost more usurping somebody else. And then she's also talking a lot about swords, and that's another another suit that has to do with like the intellect and sharpness and clarity. So it kind of feels like she's coming into this. She, she is drawing on this imagery of I know who I want to be, and I'm going to do what I need to do in order to be able to take it. It kind of feels like she's co-opting a lot of that very patriarchal imagery as well, where she's speaking about herself in in fairly masculine terms, and she's talking about moving from the kitchen where she's been arguing about her life and where it's going to go to swinging a bloody sword and going into battle, which I think is a really interesting way to talk about art because it feels incredibly combative. And it also feels like she's taking a lot of that patriarchal imagery and just placing herself in it. So she's mm -hmm. not necessarily changing anything about patriarchy. She's just changing who's performing those actions. Interesting. And that doesn't quite sit right with me necessarily. I feel like if you're, if you're going to complain about a, a specific system that doesn't do right by women and that kind of denies their created image and in, in the image of God, I don't know that overtaking that same system and becoming the, the part of the seat of power within that system is necessarily fixing the problem. It's just putting mm. one other person in the aggressor's situation. Yeah, yeah. I'm also curious how 
spirituality comes into play here because mm -hmm. the tarot cards maybe are part of this, but she's long incorporated oh, yes. um, references into her songwriting. A lot of times in a, not a vague sense, but it's, it's scattered and touches lightly on all different sort of spiritual ideas. She definitely references Christianity as well, oh, yes. frequently throughout her songs. Mm -hmm. So looking again, specifically at King, how do you, how do you see that at play here? And then how might it help us think about a Christian response to patriarchy? I don't fully know what to make of it other than her trying to usurp somebody who is in a position of authority and take over that position, which again, like, doesn't quite jive fully with Christianity. Like, we're not supposed to be the ones in authority. We're supposed to be the ones who are submitting to God's authority. Mm. So it, it kind of feels like she is treating that position of authority as something that is almost a power vacuum to be filled. Yeah. And that I I have I have a hard time with that one. I appreciate the imagery that she's working with because I think it's it's very powerful and, and captivating, but I don't know that it's captivating necessarily to the right ends. And at the same time, I think in a lot of her other songs, she is really channeling a lot of that religious imagery, like a lot of mentions of things like stained glass and sacrifice. And I think she even talks about rock and roll in one of her songs kind of being dead specifically because it hasn't been resurrected and like the image of the people who are talking about it as well. So I think she's really thinking a lot about those images of rebirth and renewal. And she's clearly very fascinated with a lot of the imagery of Christianity, but I think it's much more on an image level than it is on a, on a depths level, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And just thinking about the idea of kingship, again, incorporating mm -hmm. what you said about the, the tarot understanding, but also a biblical understanding of kingship, we do mm -hmm. definitely get that warring image in some of the Old Testament kings, but we also get this vision that counters that specifically in Jesus as king, right? Which mm -hmm. is much more of the the servant king, the suffering king, the sacrificial king. The lamb and specifically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that does stand, again, not that her intent was at all to maybe consider that aspect of it, but as we look at it, um, it does stand apart from this warring king figure that she wants to, at least in the video, take on and mm -hmm. usurp. I like that word, usurp. I think that's very fitting. I think, too, um, especially in the video, because she's kind of poised, like, there's a lot of that tarot imagery, but I think she also poses herself almost as a vampire, um, especially For in sure. the last frames of the video where she's sort of bending over this man and, like, reaching over him, kind of, kind of Dracula-like. And the image of the lamb as king is one that sustains life and gives life. And vampires are very like, we're going to take that life away from you and, and you're not going to have it anymore. So I think an interesting contrast there too. Yep, absolutely. That is, that's an incredibly striking image, how she does kind of lean over him in the hood, just, yeah, covers mm -hmm. him up. So is there another song just um, for those who are interested in the album more broadly that jumped out at you, either along these thematic lines or just one that you found yourself singing when no one's around more than any of the others? <laughs> any other highlights for you from the album? Probably half of them, honestly. Um, so Free, which I think is the second song off the album, is also like very beltable and, and a, a lot of fun to sing when no one else is listening. And then there's also uh, another song off the album that comes a little bit later called Daffodil. It feels like a little bit darker and a little bit heavier, and, and some of the guitar feels a little crunchier than some of the previous stuff mm -hmm. that she's done. She tends to rely very heavily on stringed instrument instruments and things like harps, 
and a lot of cymbals and daffodil kind of gets a little bit into like more earthy sound, um, which kind of fits with the title of the song a bit. But I think she's doing some really interesting things, both in terms of music making and sound and also in songwriting. I actually went back and listened to a couple of her older albums pretty recently and the songwriting in this newest one is a lot more pointed and a lot more focused, and it mm. feels like she's really taken an artistic step forward. Nice. Well, yeah. thank you very much, Sarah. Again, listeners interested in Florence and the Machine will want to check out Sarah's 2018 post on High as Hope, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. As far as more recent work, Sarah, what what are you and Kevin McLenathan up to on the Seeing and Believing podcast? Uh, this episode will be out by the time that this episode drops, but we reviewed Top Gun Maverick for this week's episode of uh, Seeing and Believing, and we also paired it with Philip Kaufman's 1983 movie, The Right Stuff, uh, which turned out oh, to be a course. perfect pairing. So um, had a great conversation about that. And was that a first viewing of The Right Stuff for you, or had you seen that before? I had seen it. Kevin had not. So it was okay. a really good conversation. Yep. Nice. Yeah, I know you guys flip that around. Uh, someone gets to watch something for the first time. So love that pairing. We will look for that. Again, that's the Seen and Believing podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the TC Podcast, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Hey there, John J. Thompson here, and I could never quite tell if that song was a lament, a blues, or really just an extension of the patriarchal culture that dominated the charts and the streets back in 1966 when James Brown took it to number one on the R&B chart and number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. Although he was clearly riffing off the title of the 1963 comedy, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, there's nothing funny about Brown's take. It's also worth noting that the song was co-written, or maybe completely written, by a woman named Betty Jean Newsom, who had been Brown's girlfriend for a time. How fitting that a song like this may have actually been stolen from a woman. Perfect. That's just one of the songs I have pulled together for this episode's corresponding playlist. Patriarchy, it turns out, has fueled some pretty great music over the years. From Johnny Cash to Kendrick Lamar's newest and Madonna to Florence and the Machine, even some Green Day and a Bell and Sebastian song you'll hear a bit later in the show, it's a pretty deep list. Find it all by searching for the Think Christian profile and following it, or simply click the link in the email you get from us. You can follow the latest episode mix, and it will always update automatically whenever a new show launches. You can also find the massive archive list and all of the other mixes I've made for previous episodes. Until next time, this is JJT, hoping that all of the archies in your life are actually worth following. Peace. Josh Larson here, back with the TC Podcast. It's no easy task trying to wrap your mind around the films of writer-director Alex Garland, Ex Machina, Annihilation, and Now Men, but Abby Olchesi is up for the challenge. Welcome, Abby. Thank you. I will will do my utmost. (laughs) All right, good. I am glad you are here specifically because your earlier Think Christian piece on Garland's Annihilation, it was one of those that did help me appreciate that movie a little bit more Mm -hmm. than I initially did. Initially, I found it to be a little bit diffuse, I think, but you put it in the context for Think Christian of Ash Wednesday, and that specifically kind of gave me just one 
end, you know, one kind of angle, a way Mm -hmm. into that movie. Because I think that's helpful for his films to find a way in and somewhere to anchor your thoughts, your questions, your wonderings. Now, it's interesting how people have responded to men because some, I think you hinted before we started recording here, had similar experience in terms of trying to wrap your mind around, around what was going on. But on another level, it's it's kind of simple, and it comes down to that title, right? Annihilation mm-hmm. is is a huge idea and has so many things that could be connected with it. Men, it's about men. I mean, apparently, we'll get into <laughs> it's about a lot more. But on the surface, we know this is going to be about men. So let's start, Abby, with if you can give a spoiler-free plot description to listeners. At the top here, we're not going to spoil anything, if that's possible. A very light d- description. Yeah. We'll we'll get into spoilers a little bit later, but maybe a basic plot description and then a sense of what you think Garland is basically interested in here. Okay. Yeah. I'll start by saying that this was a movie that it kind of took me a while to process. So if, if it's if people are coming to it with kind of varying reactions about what it was they saw, I feel like that's perfectly reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the outset, it's essentially about uh, a woman played by Jesse Buckley named Harper, who arrives at a country like cottage. It's like it's slightly larger than a cottage, but not quite a manor. It's a nice house that she has rented for a couple of weeks to help her process a pretty major trauma that's happened in her life related to her marriage and her husband, who is not with her when she arrives at the cottage. And so while she is there, she is kind of accosted by various men in this village. There's only, from what we understand about this village, it's only inhabited by one type of person, and that is that is Rory Kinnear, uh, playing a variety of different characters. And that um, extends to the owner of the cottage where she's staying, um, the guy who runs the pub, um, the policeman, um, a vicar, a very creepy, like, 12 or 13-year-old boy whose yeah. face has been kind of Aphex twin mutated <laughs> to look like mm-hmm. Rory Kinnear's, and also a very silent, naked man <laughs> that stalks her throughout the course of the movie. And all of these characters have varying kinds of violent patriarchal attitudes toward Harper's experience, what she's feeling, why she's feeling it, why she's reacting to things that the way that she is. And she, in turn, is just basically trying to survive and find healing in this place that she has set aside for herself and not finding that that is a successful um, experience for her at all. Yeah, and... You know, in case some are worried that finding out Kinnear plays all those parts is a spoiler, that's actually in the trailer. Now, I was fortunate enough to not have seen the trailer, so it took me a while to catch up with the movie on that front. But it is it does become obvious, you know, fairly quickly after she gets to this cottage. And that's maybe the major gambit of the film. I'm curious how that registered for you. I think you're right. There are definitely violent variations of men we see. But also this landlord, the first Kinnear incarnation we see, he's more of like a a passive aggressive. Um, just comments he makes are uh, they're patriarchal, but sort of in this old fashioned, you know, out of it uncle way, mm-hmm, um, like patronizing. So it, I'd say more. Yeah, than patronizing yeah. is a good word. And then the man, the second man she meets is the one in the forest when she goes for a walk, the naked man, who is quite threatening because of his stature. 
but until he comes onto the grounds of the cottage, just kind of stands and watches her. So that's a different expression, I think, of of a, a threatening male. What what did you think? Did this add this sort of conceit, this gambit? Did it bring a lot to the film for you, rather than say having com- different actors play each of these parts? That's a good question. Um, I think it it does in that um, I think it lends a lot to Harper's sense of powerlessness. There's a lot of imagery at work in this movie that we can discuss further, but I think the use of, uh, as my my friend Vivian put it, a dozen Rory Kinnears, um, <laughs> I think it kind of lends itself to the possibility that at heart, all men are the same man. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Sure. So Alex Garland has gone on record in, like, he's he's not often great at clarifying themes of his films. That's often what he does kind of by design. Um, but one thing he has been clear about is that he wanted to kind of create create an atmosphere of fear, create a movie that was about a sense more than anything else. Um, mm. And I think in that aspect, the use of one actor playing multiple roles to disturbing degree is, I think, a pretty good emotional stand-in for okay. what it can feel like to be a woman in a threatening situation and trying to find somebody who can help you, somebody who's going to believe you, um, especially mm. when it comes to the case of dealing with men in general. To turn to each person and it's the same face and you're getting a yes. variation on the same yeah. response. Yeah, Particularly who can you talk with- to when everybody's the same? Yeah, particularly I think when when we meet this vicar who seems to, again, at this point, it's fairly clear it's Kinnear, looks different, you know, wig, little different uh, makeup and so forth. But we understand where it's eventually going to end up. But at first he presents this, you know, offering comfort to her. They meet outside the church that she, the village church, but then it quickly turns and you see, oh, but here's really this face of patriarchal judgment that she's meeting Mm -hmm. with this particular Mm -hmm. man. It's judgment, especially. And then later they have another confrontation and it's twisted more where it's the blaming of women for the lust within the man's heart. That's the vicar brings that up. You know, you are making me feel this way. It's not me. It's you. So I think we do, the one thing, why it worked for me is we get variations on patriarchal attitudes towards women, yet as you said, with the same face behind them, it gives us a sense that there's a shared root. And, you know, we would point back to, we would point to that as a shared sin, um, an original sin. And I think this is, you mentioned the imagery here. This is where we can probably turn to talk about some of the clear Genesis imagery in particular. There are biblical motifs all throughout this film but definitely we see a lot of things pulled from Genesis, or at least I did. Probably at the very the very first one is maybe when Harper takes a bite out of an apple from a tree outside of the cottage in the yard there. And then the landlord, the Kinnear character, kind of jokingly reprimands her for it. Apple from the garden? Yeah, it was delicious. No, 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 no. Mustn't do that. Forbidden fruit. Oh, God, sorry, I... I I'm I, joking. I, It often feels to me like Garland is pulling from familiar imagery, including biblical imagery. And he's also been he's he's also used kind of Genesis based themes for for a lot of his works, not just this. And uh, I think Alyssa Wilkinson in her article in Vox had a really good a bunch of really good observations about Garland's interest in kind of paradise disrupted 
I think we're looking at a couple of different a couple of different versions of that, right? We're looking at the kind of larger mankind disruption of paradise, maybe uh, a darker sense of, like you mentioned, kind of the root of patriarchy, where that comes from, where it starts. And also we're looking at one person's particular desire for paradise that's being disrupted, like Harper's. Mm. So when she first arrives at the house, uh, when she's walking through the forest in the back, it's a really innocent and light and lovely few scenes. Um, yeah. That to me, like I, I resonated with that emotionally very, very deeply. I've had experiences like that where you just walk and are present and feel nature kind of healing you and allow yourself to kind of wander. And then that is suddenly disrupted by the arrival of the naked man who then stalks her for the rest of the film. So it's, I think we're getting a couple of senses there that maybe paradise isn't, it's, it's something we've messed up for ourselves. We're never going to get it. It's never going to come back, which is, I mean, I, I think if you're looking at it from a purely worldly sense, he's not fully incorrect there. I think it's also worth noting that he also uses imagery that's that's pretty common in British folk horror. So the green man is a repeated motif. The naked man mm-hmm. himself is, I think, a representation of the green man. There's a a moment where he attaches a, a oak leaf to the front of his head that makes him look like that carved figure. It's um, a crazy image because if I'm remembering yeah. correctly, it's even there are like scratches or cuts he has mm-hmm. that he sort of sticks the twigs in, um, an element of body horror, and there's a grizz, you know, a grizzliness to that. It's it's mm-hmm. incredibly unnerving. Yeah. And um I think the Green Man is an image that is common in Britain, but nobody's able to really fully identify what the original meaning of the character was. <laughs> we just know that it's been around for as long as there's been Britain, essentially. But the way that it's used in British folk horror is often pretty menacing. It's it's uh kind of both a sense of connection to something ancient, connection to the land, connection to nature, but also in a lot of British folk horror movies, that nature and that tradition is actively trying to kill people. So there's kind of a question of modernity and maybe the original sin of colonization or mm. just a lot of a lot of things that are tied to history in Britain specifically. And I think both of those kind of lend themselves to amping up that atmosphere of, of fear, right? Like we see the green man and you're probably going to expect a certain amount of menace. You see Harper eating the apple, you see images of of Genesis, and you get a sense of original sin. Those things mm-hmm. are kind of tied together. And even if there's not something specifically being stated in those moments, I feel like in both cases we're drawing on like a shared cultural imagery sense to yeah. kind of help us get in a headspace where we're going to feel what he wants us to feel. It goes back to what you're saying before about it evoking a feeling more than one specific idea, which is why I've seen some critics complain about this movie being as literal as its title and finding it to be a little deadening because you get it from the title and it offers nothing new. But I would say in the way it does evoke this mood through these different references, I found it pretty compelling. I'm glad you brought up the Green Man too, because that was a figure I was unfamiliar with. So my mind went you know, from the the tree and the apple, I'm already thinking Genesis. I'm seeing him as an Adam figure in a way. And I'm mm-hmm. even looking at the leaves and is he covering himself up like the fig leaves in the Bible? Like what, how does this all come into play? But absolutely the green man makes even more sense, you know, knowing that there's that tradition in British folklore as well. So all of that is in is in this mix. Should we get to 
the really weird stuff, as if that wasn't weird enough, and maybe talk about the ending <laughs> and, and do a little spoiler talk here, mostly because I just want to hear what you make of it, <laughs> what your take. Yeah, let's dig in. <laughs> All right, let's do it. So again, listeners, if uh, you plan to see men, maybe you want to pause here, skip ahead a little bit and uh, pick up with us later. But we're going to spend a few minutes on the ending itself, which is this confrontation between Harper. And it begins with this Adam slash green man, right? Isn't that the first figure who comes through the arch toward in the or is it um, it's not the landlord, is it? No, I think I think it is. I think it is the green man. He comes in and then okay. gives birth. Yeah. Yes, it's one. It's one of these men that she's been meeting at any rate, who literally you said gives birth, and people may be thinking where you're talking, you're alluding to like you know somehow this <laughs> magical realist way. No, this is like full on. You're at the hospital, and the dad's got the camera in a very intrusive place. This is what we're seeing in this scene, but it is a man giving birth to another one of the men who we have met in this movie. And that proceeds to happen a number of times until this eventually has pushed Harper back into the cottage. And the final man who is quote unquote born is her husband, who we know from the very beginning of the film and repeated flashbacks. And we've also learned how it was abusive to her and threatened suicide uh, as a way to manipulate her. And the act that resulted in her leaving is he went upstairs to a neighbor's apartment and the movie doesn't want us to know for sure, but either did jump or slipped from their balcony and she saw him fall to his death. So that is the trauma she's gone to process at this cottage. And this is the figure who emerges, who is finally birthed. Okay. Um, <laughs> what were you thinking while watching this, Abby? And what do you make of it now? Well, initially, just uh, shock. <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a pretty shocking image when the first character, when the green man comes in and has this just giant swollen belly. So not only is it pregnant man, it's like, imagine a belly filled with cannonballs, like it's huge. Um, yes. And then gives birth, and then that character comes out pregnant and then gives birth, and it's very visceral and frightening. I believe the green man character, is he still injured in the way that her husband was injured with like the split hand? It's a good question. A number of the men who peer up, who appear are share the same injury. Cause mm -hmm. one touch I liked is how they all are kind of, you know, holding that against her too. Like what, look yeah. what you did to me, blaming her, you know, using mm -hmm. her self-defense as a weapon against her. Essentially. I don't remember yeah. if specifically the green man has that wound, but a number of them do. Yeah. So you see these characters that have kind of an echo of her husband's wounds and which I think kind of gives you a sense of her own grief and sense of guilt in some mm. way related to that. I actually, I really liked what you said about uh, the green man also being maybe kind of an Adam figure in that with that character being the first one to appear and give birth, I feel like that has some symbolic significance. Maybe we're getting like this kind of primal original character, origin character giving birth to one man who gives birth to another man who gives birth to another man, maybe yeah. suggesting a sense of progression, resulting in the reappearance of her husband, James, who is played by a different actor, not Rory Kinnear. Um, that's right. So that's that's a little different. But the final thing that he says to her, she asks him, what do you want from me, basically? Just asking both this, this figure of her husband and I think the larger specter of evil that's been haunting her at large for the rest of the movie. 
Um, and his response to her is your love, which is just like the neediest response that mm-hmm. a person could give another person that they've been terrorizing for the last however long. And I think is meant to kind of suggest the needy intrusion of men into the lives of women in some instances in the sense of Harper's relationship to her husband, James. I think it's worth noting in that in that relationship, it feels like she wasn't allowed to have much agency, which is the reason she wanted to leave in the first place. Yeah. And so I think, I think we're getting kind of an echo of that. Basically she's okay. in, in her trying to get away from that situation and trying to heal and trying to move on. She is, again, trying to assert her own agency as a person with needs who is meeting those needs um, and sure. having take, taking care of herself, taking time for herself um, and still not being allowed to do so because this needy, intrusive, emotional presence in her life just will not let her. So I think there's some truth to that in the experience of women uh, in the world <laughs> at large. I think there's some truth in that relationship specifically. Um, so I think it works both allegorically and in the story itself. Mm. Um, I've, I've also seen in interviews that um, Garland has said that this is not something that exists solely in Harper's head, that it was important to him that it not be that. Interesting. Um, yeah, which is another interesting thing to consider. So we're not, it's definitely what we're seeing is kind of an emotional journey that she is going on. That's a reflection of that, but it's also something that is happening to her externally. So that's, hmm. that's an interesting thing to keep in mind as you watch it, I guess. Yeah, especially because the very ending, I think, could be read as it might have taken place all in her own head, which I think would be, I think he's smart to say that because if that is the case, I think that's a little problematic. It's another it's another feeding of the, well, we don't need to believe her because she was making all this up anyway. And I think that sure. would undermine a lot of what the movie is doing. Quickly should add, her husband is played by Papa Esidu, who, mm-hmm. as I said, appears at the beginning and then in various flashbacks. I like that you said echo, how these birthings are echoes, because an echo literally plays a huge part in the sound design. On that walk through the forest early on, she comes across a tunnel. And before she sees at the end of the tunnel, the naked man, she just stands there and makes a few musical notes and lets them bounce back and forth in the tunnel very beautifully. But then Mm -hmm. those echoes, her own voice comes back to haunt her later in the film during some very intense moments where she feels threatened. And it's kind of an inversion of the beautiful echo before becomes something that is scary later. I think it's also back to the births for me. It was an ironic inversion of a very maternal female experience that here is being co-opted by men and turned Mm -hmm. into something that is threatening instead of beautiful. It kind of works the same way. The births, those births are the way the echoes have been distorted by the men threatening her. So I, like you, my jaw just kept dropping every time we got a new quote-unquote baby, and it took a <laughs> while to to try to figure out what the heck that could have meant. But you touched on the generational thing, which I do think is a part of it too, is that this goes back to the original sin idea, is at the fall, everything was broken, which does include male-female relationships, which were meant at the beginning in God's good creation to be a full partnership and a chance to enjoy each other's presence. And one of the fallouts of the fall is that that has been corrupted really from the beginning and passed down through these generations until we get 
Yeah, I really like what you said about it working allegorically and within Harper's narrative because we've been getting it ever since. And also we've been getting it in this very specific way for her with this very specific man. It does come down to one man for her that she's mm-hmm. dealing with. And so I do think it's a it's a very gruesome way to maybe bring that home, but uh, but does work for me. Yeah, I would agree. It's I I yeah, I I like I like where this conversation has gone. I feel like I understand the movie more. I feel like uh, it's kind of one yeah. of those movies, right? You need to, you really need to go talk it out with people <laughs> to, yeah, to and complete the experience. In general, I find that that's something that Alex Garland's movies do really well. And I kind yep. of appreciate his intentional lack of clarity about like, mm. um, not just what his movies are about, but the way that his movies are about those things. Um, I think he really is a filmmaker who's interested in generating conversation and to have people ask questions. I think in this particular case, there's there's a question worth asking that as a male filmmaker, is he suited to tell a story like this? And it's a really good one. Yeah, I think mileage may vary. Um, yeah, I, I do think that there's the question as to like, as a woman, I have felt the way that Harper has felt in certain situations in my life. I both appreciate the fact that somebody recognizes those for what they are and can put them in an emotional perspective that feels artistic and thoughtful but also kind of resented having to watch that and feel that <laughs> mm, <laughs> as somebody who goes through that feeling. However, I think ultimately I am still glad that it exists um, as a piece of art. I think it's generating some really interesting conversations. Yep. Yeah. Does it matter that a man made men? I think that is one <laughs> of the hanging questions that uh, is still out there and worth debating. And to that end, this is probably a good opportunity to remind listeners that um, you can send us feedback real very easily. Uh, TC podcast at thinkchristian.net. We have set up to get emails from you. So if you have seen men and have other theories, want to weigh in on that question Abby just raised about a male filmmaker making a movie like this, would love to hear that feedback. So again, send that to tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. Thanks, Abby. We will link to your TC piece on Annihilation as well, because that definitely connects here. And with Pentecost just passed, but still on our minds, it's worth reminding listeners that you have an installment in your church calendar series you've done for us, films connected to the church liturgical calendar. So five films for Pentecost is a really good one and worth checking out this time of year. So we'll link to that as well. Thanks as always for all the good stuff you do for us, Abby. Thanks, Josh. It's been a, a great conversation. Thanks for having me. That's Belle and Sebastian's Sarah Martin singing there on Reclaim the Night. But she could be speaking for Harper, the tormented woman at the center of men. Reclaim the Night comes from Belle and Sebastian's latest album, A Bit of Previous, which I highly recommend. Vintage stuff from the Scottish indie pop band there. Because so many of its stories are set in a patriarchal context, the Bible can be misinterpreted by some as a patriarchal text. But then we have something like Proverbs 31, which paints a picture of what has come to be known as the Proverbs 31 woman. Catherine Freeman, a regular guest on the podcast, wrote about that passage on the TC website a while back. 
Now, longtime listeners will not be surprised to hear that Catherine connected it to Beyonce's Run the World Girls. In that piece, Catherine describes Proverbs 31 as a countercultural allegory of the value of women. She goes on to say, The Proverbs 31 woman runs the world, and while most of us are aiming to run much smaller real estate, we can be encouraged by her example rather than condemned. Bottom line, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, not for what she does, but because of who she is, a daughter created in the image of God, her father, with a unique purpose and plan for her life. Thanks to Catherine for that reminder of a biblical anti-patriarchal point of view, and thanks to Abiel Chessie and Sarah Welch-Larsen for joining me today to talk about patriarchy in the context of men and Florence and the machine. You can keep up with both of them on Twitter. Abby is at Abiel Chessie, and Sarah is at Dodgy Baffin. We're on Twitter, too, of course, as well as Facebook. Just look for us at Think Christian. Now, over on YouTube, you will find a video version of this show as well as other video content. So search for the Think Christian channel on YouTube. Now, if you are on YouTube right now, well, then you missed out on a couple of tracks from the Spotify playlist that John J. Thompson compiled for this episode, as well as a little bit of Florence and the Machine's King. To hear those songs and others around the theme of patriarchy, search for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit ReframeMinistries.org for more info. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassler. Thank you so much for listening. We'll get together again in a couple of weeks to consider how another aspect of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith.